Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Cyber Monday, November 27th. Israel has been at war for 52 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FDD, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. It felt like a year's worth of news this weekend. Nobody expects you to read that much, but that's what we do. That's the beauty of the FDD Morning Brief. We break it all down for you in a 20-minute podcast. Let's get going, shall we? This morning, I'll be joined by Barack Rabid, a reporter at Axios, who has as many scoops as I have gray hairs. That's too many to count, in case you're wondering. But before that, here's what we're tracking. Saturday's hostage prisoner release was a dicey one. It almost fell apart after Hamas began to drag its feet. The Israelis put a few fighter jets into the skies over Gaza, and that seemed to help Hamas remember the terms of the agreement. Sunday's exchange was a lot smoother. More women and children were released along with a dual Russian national who apparently escaped for a few days before being captured again in Gaza. Hamas now says it is willing to release more hostages for additional days of ceasefire. The government of Qatar seems to like that idea too. But today's release is still being negotiated. The problem today stems from Hamas's apparent attempts to separate kids from their mothers. There are 177 hostages remaining in Gaza by, uh, by one count. 18 of them are kids. 40 of them have not been located, according to Hamas. Finally, Qatar has reportedly secured an agreement with Israel that the Mossad will not assassinate any of the Hamas leaders based in the tiny Gulf Emirate. One can only assume that this arrangement is good until the hostage channel collapses. After that, who knows? We'll continue to watch these stories, but here are your top three big ones to watch today. Headline one, Hamas floated an end of conflict agreement on Al Jazeera this weekend. Here's what we know. A spokesman for the terror group, Ghazi Hamad, suggested a sweeping deal during an interview on the Qatari-owned news channel that spouts anti-Israel invective around the clock. Hamad said that Hamas was ready to release the remaining Israeli hostages in exchange for thousands of Israeli prisoners, or rather Palestinian prisoners, held in Israeli jails for violent acts of terrorism. In other words, Hamas appears to be thinking about ways to end this conflict once and for all. So now what? Israel would obviously do whatever it takes to get back the remaining hostages, but that desperation is now matched by Hamas's fraud attempts to get out of the current predicament it finds itself in. In addition to Hamad's suggested arrangement, Hamas has also proposed a more modest extension of the current ceasefire for four more days in exchange for another 40 freed Israeli hostages. It's safe to say that Hamas is in bad shape right now. The northern uh, Gaza base of operations is destroyed and it's under Israeli control. It's unclear whether the group will be able to, uh, to withstand the withering assault that Israel is expected to mount on central and southern Gaza when the ceasefire ends. Israel announced yesterday that it eliminated five of the, tops, uh, the group's top military commanders in the last hours of fighting before the ceasefire took hold. Headline two. The Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen continue to wreak havoc on the high seas. Here's what we know. After airing a bizarre video last week in which Yemenis sporting traditional tribal dress were dancing on the deck of a ship they pirated, the Houthis were back at it over the weekend. One Israeli-owned uh, vessel was hit with a suicide drone. Another attack on a separate ship was repelled by U.S. forces. The Houthis then shot at an American warship. 
The missiles missed by 10 nautical miles, but it's all still concerning amidst multiple Houthi attempts to attack Israel with missiles and drones. All of this is being done at the behest of Iran. So now what? Israel has no interest in battling the Houthis, nor does the United States. But that said, the U.S. Navy is now actively patrolling the Red Sea, and CENTCOM has vowed to respond to and repel any future attacks. This will ensure freedom of navigation for Israeli-owned vessels, along with many others that transit this crucial waterway. But it does not preclude additional suicide drone attacks, nor does it do much to stop the ongoing missile and drone threat. In the meantime, the Saudis have been conspicuously silent. Until this crisis, they were the primary targets of the Iran-backed terror group. It's fair to say that the Saudis right now don't want to be drawn into a Middle East war where they are lumped into an alliance with Israel and the United States. But maybe it's just me. Isn't that where the Saudis belong? More on that in future episodes, I think. And finally, headline three, Hamas has released a number of Thai, Filipino, and even Russian nationals in this deal. Iran appears to have played a role in some of this. Here's what we know. The Thai government appealed directly to the regime in Iran after 10-7 to secure the release of their nationals. Early reports suggest that the government in Bangkok was asked to contribute a hefty sum to the UN Relief and Works Agency, which has long been suspected of assisting Hamas. And while there is a direct channel between the Kremlin and Hamas, Russia has also appealed directly to Iran for the release of one of its citizens. Of course, the Russians already have an open channel in Tehran, which provides drones and missiles to the Kremlin for its war effort in Ukraine. So now what? The Iranian involvement in the hostage release tells us two things. One, that Iran is quite obviously a Hamas patron with significant influence over the group. We knew that already. But two, pressure on Iran works. Everyone else seems to understand this except the Biden administration, which continues to avoid challenging Iran. This despite the fact that Iran-backed militias have attacked the United States some 70 times in Iraq and Syria since the war began. Simply put, if the U.S. would stand up to the Iranian regime and pressure Tehran to halt its malign activities, we might begin to see some order return to the Middle East. I mean, what good is being a superpower if you can't put pressure on weaker, bad actors to do the right thing? Those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Barack Ravid. Barack is a political reporter for Axios covering foreign policy in the 2024 elections. He is also Washington correspondent for Israel's Walla News. Welcome, Barack Ravid. Hi, Jonathan. Good to have you with us. Let's jump right in here. I want to ask you, you've been covering the Middle East for a long time, but you've also been covering the White House, and you've got pretty good access from what I can tell. So tell us, who is running this war at the White House right now? I think uh, the person who's running this war from the White House is President Biden. Um, I think it's pretty clear. Um, everything you see from uh, other people in the White House, from you know people who speak from the podium or the national security team, I think it's all driven by uh, Biden's uh, personality, Biden's convictions, Biden worldview, and Biden's experience with his relationship with Israel over the last uh, 50 years. You know, I heard John Kirby, uh, the White House spokesman, uh, he gave a briefing to the Jewish community a few days ago. And he was asked about the, um, uh, you know, several uh, uh, cases where he gave 
you know, those very strong monologues defending uh, uh, the Israeli operation in Gaza. And when he was asked, uh, how did you feel uh, giving, you know, such strong support? So he said, you know, I, I felt great because I know that this is what the president thinks. Uh, so I think that that covers it uh, pretty fully. Well, okay, that that that's interesting because obviously we see a whole bunch of other folks. I mean, we see Brett McGurk and we see uh, Jake Sullivan. Obviously, these guys are heavily involved as well. I'll take your word for it that uh, that they're following the lead of the president. Um, but maybe let's just uh, dig a little deeper. What does Joe Biden want in this war? Does he want it to end? Does he want to give the Israelis the time and space to be able to clean up things in the Gaza Strip? How, how would you describe what he is working toward? What is his end state that he would like to see? Uh, so first, <clears throat> I think all of the above. Meaning, if you ask me whether President Biden wants to see uh, Hamas rule in Gaza end, that definitely, I think that it's a definite yes. Both because he said it publicly, and both because that's what he's telling people privately. And and honestly, that's the policy right now. I, I just don't see. Uh, we are now fifty days in. Okay, um, I've covered four or five wars and operations in Gaza with. I think, you know, four U.S. presidents, um, it, it, you never get to 50 days like that, okay, when basically the president of the United States does not call for a ceasefire um, and does not um, strong arm uh, Israel into uh, stopping the operation. Um, I think that says everything. I, I remember uh, not only... Um, President Obama, but also I remember President Bush in doing an operation in Gaza, even before, I think it was even before the Israeli disengagement from Gaza, uh, where there was a, an operation in northern Gaza Strip where he came on TV and said, this operation stops now. Uh, and this was on day two. <laughs> so I think uh, Biden wants Hamas to be uh, um, uh, toppled from the from uh, governing uh, the Gaza Strip, but okay. At the same time, you know, he wants to get more humanitarian aid in. He wants to uh, prevent more uh, civilian casualties, uh, and more than everything. And this, I think, is is the number one issue. He wants to hear what's the plan for afterwards. And until now, the Israeli government does not have one. Yeah, and I, I think that that'll be something we talk about here um, in, in the future, and perhaps we'll have you back on that. That's a big topic of conversation that I think we've not yet seen a lot of clarity on. But speaking of lack of clarity, let, let me let me uh, ask you to dig down a little bit into some of the other policies that are related to this war. I, and I, I'm thinking about some of the administration officials that I'm sure you've talked to over uh, the years. I'm thinking about Amos Hochstein, who's done a lot of work on Lebanon. His work, I'm sure, has been upended as a result of the war. Hezbollah has been fighting Israel on, the, on its northern border. We've got the Houthis attacking uh, Israel out of Yemen and even attacking American warships. That's got to throw a kink into the work of Tim Lenderking, who's been the envoy to uh, to trying to bring uh, a ceasefire to the civil war in Yemen. And then, of course, there is the broader Iranian policy, which I feel like has also been upended by this uh, conflict. 
all of the talk about trying to draw the Iranians closer to reach some kind of a nuclear deal, all of that seems to have really been um, set back significantly. I'm being obviously very understated here. <laughs> what, what, how, yeah, how do we understand? Say, I wanted to say that you're, you're, that's the understatement of the century. It is, it is. But but so what are these people doing now? I mean, right, no, you're I, tracking their work. How are they How are they pursuing their previous goals or have they thrown them all out? No, so first let's, let's start with the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, you know, I want to hope that you know, not everybody. I know it's never it's never everybody, but at least I hope that enough people in the administration realize today that taking the Houthis off the terrorism, U.S. terrorism list was not a good idea. Okay? Uh, you know, and I'm being very understated here. Um, I'm joining you in the in, 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 in this British understatement. Okay? It was not a good idea to take the Houthis off the terror list. You know why? Because they're terrorists, you know, it's uh, and and they prove it every day, um, including yesterday when they <clears throat> fired two rockets at, at U.S. Uh, uh, at the U.S. destroyer, the Red Sea. Uh, so I think, or I hope that this is going to change and it's going to change uh, soon. Uh, second, about Iran, you know, for a long time, the U.S. argument was we're not gonna. Uh, first, the U.S. argument was that Iran is deterred. Uh, and that it it uh, scaled back its attacks on U.S. forces in Syria. I think that's that's not the case anymore. Uh, another argument was that the U.S. will not act against Iranian proxies in Syria because you know it doesn't want to provoke Iran. So now Iran did not need to be provoked in order to attack U.S. bases and forces in Syria and Iraq more than 50 times since October 7th, and uh, the U.S. is now. Uh, I think conducted four or five airstrikes against Iranian targets in Syria and Iraq, and I think this is going to uh, continue. And about Lebanon, um, I, here I think the administration sees an opening out of this uh, crisis um, because uh, there was a stalemate on the border. Uh, just before the war, there was this whole crisis on the Israel-Lebanon border over this tent that Hezbollah um, uh, uh, put in Israeli uh, territory uh, and did not want to move it. Um, and over those positions of Hezbollah uh, near the border, near the border uh, fence, all of those, all those are gone now um, after uh, 50 days of, of fighting uh, because Israel destroyed them. And now I think that opens up some sort of a possible negotiation over the land border, like the same negotiation that took place over the maritime border. And I think there's quite an appetite now, or at least more appetite now on the Israeli side to try and get some sort of an arrangement over the land border that will also include getting uh, Hezbollah's Radwan force further away uh, from the border. Yeah, I've, I've certainly seen those reports, and they're talking about trying to push Radwan further up uh, past the Latani, which, of course, I can't imagine Hezbollah is going to uh, want to agree to that, but uh, I suppose we can watch, and who knows? I mean, first, Radwan forces, a lot of them, were already pushed further away from the border, okay? Not through a diplomacy, but through kinetic force, okay? And that's, 
I guess that's what was needed. You know, sometimes you're in a stalemate, you can't get a deal, you need, you know, kinetic force to, you know, open up uh, the playing field. Uh, and I think that that's what we saw. We ha you have more than 80 Hezbollah uh, militants that were uh, killed in the last 50 days. That, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot for this organization. Uh, and when the fighting is on still on quite a low bar. So I think there is, and, and it's not going to finish in the, you know, I think this, the fighting still continues. Um, so I think it's an opportunity to change the reality on the border, not necessarily through an all-out war, but through a combination between kinetic force and diplomacy. And I, yeah, I think, well, look, I, I'm not sure the uh, the diplomatic track will work, but it is interesting to see the Israelis right now, those from the northern communities are saying that they won't return to their homes until there is a new arrangement. So I think the pressure's on Israel for sure to try to create a new balance of power uh, on the northern border. I got one more question for you, Barack, before we leave. Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, echoed the president this weekend saying that the U.S. might condition aid to Israel. What is that about? First, you know, I watched this interview. He did not say that that U.S. is going to condition aid uh, to Israel. By the way, Biden also didn't say that. Uh, Biden said that uh, those who call uh, for uh, conditioning aid, he's called, he called this, uh, I think, a worthwhile thought. But then he said, but if I did that, we wouldn't be where we are uh, now, meaning there would be no aid going into Gaza, there would be no pause in the fighting, and, and we wouldn't get anywhere with the Israelis. And I think, uh, I think he's right. Um, so I don't see any appetite among the people who actually call the shots in this administration to condition aid over the war in Gaza. What I do see, okay, and I think this is important, is that the administration is telling Israel, uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, either in private or in public, that while it supports its war in Gaza to topple Hamas, it expects to see an, a different policy in the West Bank. Um, and it expects uh, Israel to seriously tackle settler violence. It expects Israel on the day after to curb on uh, settlement uh, activity. And I think that if we look at what is the issue that can trigger some sort of uh, uh, a U.S. review of aid to Israel. It's not Gaza. It's the West Bank. Okay. Well, thank you for your insights, Barack, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay. Here are the other stories FTD is following closely. My colleagues Mark Montgomery and Annie Fixler of FTD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation are tracking an Iran-backed cyber group that took control of a small Pennsylvania town's water facility, possibly because the utility used Israeli-made parts. For years, the FTD team has been warning of the grave cyber vulnerabilities to America's water systems and critical infrastructure. In partnership with the Cyber Readiness Institute and Microsoft, FTD experts are helping to provide free cyber training programs to hundreds of vulnerable water utilities. U.S. Treasury Undersecretary Brian Nelson is on his way to Turkey this morning. According to a Treasury press release, he is there to discuss efforts to, quote, 
deny Hamas and other terrorist organizations the ability to raise and move funds, end quote. It should be an awkward conversation given the support that the Turkish government is providing Hamas over the last decade. My colleague Sinan Gidi will be watching this carefully. The readout from Nelson's meetings should be interesting. My colleague David Adesnik is tracking things that go boom in Syria. Yesterday, airstrikes were reported in Damascus near the international airport. Over the last decade, Israel has destroyed thousands of Iranian targets. Most of them are related to the regime's efforts to transfer lethal precision-guided munitions to Hezbollah in Lebanon, although sometimes they are targets of opportunity, like Iranian officials. Israel usually tries to maintain a certain level of deniability. It's gray zone warfare, after all. In the meantime, Israeli officials say that Syrian strongman Bashar al-Assad doesn't want war with Israel. Still, Iran-backed groups are operating in Syria, whether he likes it or not. Keep an eye on the North, folks. It's always interesting. You can read about these and other developments we track on our website, fdd.org. Please follow our work on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at FDD. And please make your contributions at FDD slash invest. If you enjoyed today's briefing, we do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. My next guest will be New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Music